Welcome to the Nobody Told Me That podcast. My name is Teresa Duncan, and my goal is to share information that you probably weren't thinking about. I love preparing my friends for situations that may come completely out of the blue. I also want to share with you many of the tidbits I picked up over the years. If you absolutely have to tune out before the end of the show, make sure you check out the show notes for more details and information on today's topic. And thank you so much for making me a part of your day. We're back with another episode of Nobody Told Me That, and I have, you guys, I'm bringing in a heavy here, somebody with a a big degree and a big breadth of experience to talk about something super, super important nowadays, since we're dealing with so many, I guess, changes and transitions and thoughts about the future. I brought in my friend, Natasha Gillis with the Gillis Firm. Hello, Natasha. Hi, Teresa. Thanks for having me. Of course, of course. So she actually has a very fun podcast called The Dental Bites with Dental Zorro and The Smiling Lawyer. And she's the smiling lawyer, which I can confirm because I'm looking at her right now and she's smiling. Uh, but what the reason I know Natasha is through uh, Malika Azergoon, who is a wonderful consultant in our area. And she's a good friend of yours, right? Absolutely. She's my Zorro. Yeah, she is the Zorro. And the reason why Natasha and I connected is because there's so many different changes going on. This year has been something else. And we started talking on the phone about the transitions and what people are thinking about and what are the goals that people are setting. And I wanted her to talk to you all to let you know what is going on out there, what she's seeing, what she's hearing. Is there something that maybe you're missing by setting your goals for this year and the rest of next year? And if any of you are working for a doctor or you are a doctor who's looking to make some changes in the near future, you know, put this stuff take it from the back of your mind and bring it a little bit forward and see if anything she has to say makes sense and maybe fits into that plan. Because it always is good to hear what other people are doing because we live in a bubble. I always say that, Natasha, I always say we live in a bubble and it's always good to see what goes on outside of our bubble in other offices. So when we had the shutdown, you were probably like, what's going on here? Did your phone stop ringing or did it just, did people freak out your clients? How did that work out? Uh, I think one of your favorite words is pivoting, right? (laughs) (laughs) It was a pivot. So the bulk of my practice area is helping dentists who are contemplating starting their own practices or growing their practices. And so oftentimes I'll get calls from people who are generally specialty practices, thinking about building practices from scratch or otherwise just acquiring an existing practices. Those are generally the general GPs. So everything was wonderful in 2019. It was a hot market, lots of buyers, lots of sellers, lots of startups. And then we had a lot of cases in the pipeline in January. So a lot of the industry side professionals were gearing up for a really busy year. I think economic morale was high. And then all of a sudden, you know, with this unsurety, people just started pausing their plans. And so a lot of the concern, and this is kind of the inspiration when you and I were talking about this podcast, and it's still a little bit lingering is, you know, a lot of practice owners, especially the ones who are looking at buying other practices, they said, is now a good time? Can I sustain that financial burden? Can I support my staff? Can I 
provide services to patients. So a lot of those plans came to a pause. So when offices were fairly shut down between March and April, and then, you know, depending on the state, some started opening back up in May for general services, not just uh, emergency services, I started again seeing that sort of economic morale with the dentists coming back. And a lot of people felt like, you know what, we are in, in so many ways infectious disease oriented. We're used to these protocols. We're used to how to handle these sort of unique cases. So how is this any different? We just need to make sure we are prepared with the proper PPE, with the proper protocol. And so now I'm seeing again a shift back to that sort of hot momentum of, okay, we have a situation, we're ready to deal with it. Plans shouldn't change because of it. So there's about, in terms of if my if I had 100% confidence, for instance, back in 19, I feel like we're at 65 plus percent where people are feeling a lot more prepared to move forward again. And climbing. Do you think it's climbing? I do. Okay. It helps with the warm months. You know, everybody loves summer months, but yes, I talk to a lot of, you know, bankers and CPAs and we are all seeing this as the economy reopens and people are kind of getting back into normal work mode. And, you know, patients are, are, able to pay for those services because they're back and employed, we are seeing a lot more confidence growing. Oh, that, well, that's really, that's so nice to hear. I know when we shut down, it was almost insulting that, you know, you mentioned infectious diseases. It was almost insulting that the governments were looking at us as not being infectious disease experts. And so, but we're past that now. We find, I guess we've made peace with our local governments for, oh, I don't know. I shouldn't say that. I should not go with this is me knocking on wood. Um, <laughs> but as far as the conversations regarding purchasing practices, I imagine there were a bunch of practices that went on the market because of the shutdowns or because that's what I kept hearing uh, in our area, especially we're in Northern Virginia and you're all up and down the East Coast, right? Like you are are focused on the East Coast. Is that correct? My heavy focus is Virginia. Okay. But, um, you know, if I'm called to action here and there, I'll, I'm happy to help within those states like D.C. and Maryland as well. Okay. All right. Oh, that's right. You're a lawyer. So you have these uh, these bar things that you have to worry about, right? <laughs> these, yes. <laughs> these little things like bars. So, uh, <laughs> okay. So as far as uh, people looking to sell their practice, was it a knee-jerk reaction when, when the shutdown happened? Or was there really you know, were they scared or was there really like, we have no operating capital? You know, I've noticed that age group has a lot to do with it, believe it or not. The sellers who are getting ready to retire within, I would say, two to three years, this is back in 19, for example, it felt like that the feedback that I've been getting is, listen, I'm tired of working I can't keep up with this new sort of PPE requirements and protocols. And at this point, I'm ready to hang up my hat sooner than later. So that's one example of yes. In some instances, some sellers are saying, I've had enough, I'm done. I'm going to retire sooner. On the other instance, you know, some sellers are struggling with the understanding of how borrowers, lenders are treating these practices, where they're saying, hey, my practice is worth X, 
And then the lender is coming in and saying, no, we can't lend more than this much to this practice. And they have various lending parameters in, in terms of the practice has to uh, have at least X percent of revenues post COVID and so on and so forth. So you'll see it across the board. Um, but I'll tell you, inventory, so to speak, with respect to practices that are available compared to potential buyers has always been tight. Um, and now I don't think that that's changed much. It's it's interesting because right now, because of the lending scenario, you'll see a lot of lenders looking at what they call ideal practices in terms of this practice is a strong producing practice. It never really stopped. It had a brief pause, but it's still able to generate revenues. It's They'll look at those sort of parameters and saying, okay, we're comfortable lending on these deals. But otherwise, if you're a seller right now who's not motivated, who's tired, who's almost even retirement age, yes, you'll see a lot of those practices come up for sale. And generally, there is a price discount to reflect that. So how long are they staying on the market? I mean, average. I know it, it varies. You know, low-tech offices are going to be a little bit uh, rougher to sell, but something that's hot is going to go flying off the shelf, obviously. But so what are you seeing as far as um, time on market? Location being key. I mean, depending on the different sort of parameters, um, you will see. So on average, in a normal environment with no concern over COVID or non-COVID, most practices will, it's not unusual for them to sit for a year. Now, if it's a prime location, like in, for example, Northern Virginia, McLean, Arlington, those key places where there's high demand already because it's the it place to be, you'll see them within a few months getting potential buyers interested. So it really, it depends on having the right broker to help you with your pricing strategy. If you're a seller, making sure you understand the true value of your practice and not the ideal value. And very much like listing a house, you have to understand what goes into showcasing your practice in the best light, achieving those financial thresholds and benchmarks to get your practice to a point where you can generate max um, sales price for it. So that's kind of what we're seeing now. I would say about a year to sometime, anywhere from a few months to a year is not necessarily unusual. So one of the, uh, one of the things we talked about on the phone, and I know that we've, we've, gone over some talking points prior to this, but I really like the idea of you having a strategy in place for the sale, because I know some doctors that are listening are probably thinking a year, like, what if I want to get out now? Like, what? Well, that's a long time. But you have said before that, that, that it starts in the, like you start ahead of time because you need to really set, you have to identify your buyer, right? You have to identify the goals of your practice. You have a three-step process. And I, if we could walk through that, I'd really appreciate it for the audiences. So the, the first one you, you talked about was making sure that you have a goal in mind, right? And, and making the practice, I guess, purchasable. And that I guess that starts a year out or even before then. How do you, when a, when a patient or a patient, <laughs> when a client comes to you, a potential client comes to you and says, I am looking to sell What's the first, I guess, thing that you tackle with them? Well, for sales, so it's really important to understand the motivation between sellers and buyers. They have two, at the end of the day, the same goal of making sure the transaction occurs, but on two different sides of the table. So for sellers, what I generally recommend is make sure that you identify your goals, I would say at least two years out if possible. 
Now, the problem is sometimes disability, sometimes life circumstances, moving, things can happen sooner and you can't necessarily foresee that in your future. And that's okay. But if you're able and you have the the time to plot it out, come up with a vision board. If you're a seller, where do I want to be? And I've worked with some wonderful brokers. Um, Teresa, I don't know if you know of this team and the late uh, Dr. Jim Schrader with Leadership by Design, but he was an amazing visionary. And he, I, I sat in on one of the kind of a co-panel that we were conducting with the VDA. I think it was last year. I've lost track of my days. No, it was the year before <laughs> But we were, you know, co-panelists and he had a lot of really good feedback about when the right time to consider selling is. And his theory was when you're in your late fifties, it's a really good idea to start considering your retirement plans because physically the practice of dentistry is so intensive that it's rare to have a successful, motivated career where you're actually able to physically perform those demands and have those work hours and generate that max revenue past your fifties. And just hearing his philosophies, I I mean, I, I totally understand it. So his position was, you know, you have a bell curve in your practice where when you get to a certain point based on family demands, you're at a stage where you're growing your own family, you're growing your practice at different points within your life cycle. Your practice has different sort of values because of your ability to work, your ability to focus your energies. So his position was once you reach your about mid 50s, you really should consider your retirement plan and your what what now plans. So I've found too in in just kind of representing a lot of buyers, because I do a lot of buyer side representation, the sellers who are strategizing for sale at that time generally command more value for their practices. And his philosophy seemed completely uh, sound. So I would say if you can figure out your two-year plan and then start, so some sellers will say, you know what, I want to have very clear directive on who's going to take over. So they'll say, let me hire an associate, groom them, let them know what my plans are so that when the time comes, I can pass the baton to them. So in those cases, those are the most successful sales because they're both parties are engaged towards the same goal. But if you have a situation where we see a lot of sellers just listening to practice with a broker, definitely consult with your consultant team and make sure at all times have a realistic goal in mind. What you might think your practice is worth may not in fact be what it's worth. So defer to the financial advice, understand how a lender's banker would be looking at your practice, understand those hurdles. And if you're far out enough where you have those two-year cushions, you might be able, if your practice is declining and you understand that's something to be concerned with, you might be able to patch those holes and bring the practice value back up. But it's really, it's a, it depends on the circumstances for buyers on when the right time to plan and, and, and move is. But I would just say defer to your brokers, select a really good brokerage team who can help you smooth over that process. So when you said vision board, um, that's typically something that, I mean, that's more of a creative type exercise. And and there's a lot of people who the dentists are typically scientists and can't really wrap their head around vision board. And I know this from trying to do vision statements and mission statements with dentists. It's hard to, sometimes it's 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 not a tangible concept, so it's hard for them to grasp. When you are working with that person and you're helping them with the vision board, what do you mean by vision board? Are you talking about, I, I, and I, it seems like you're talking about time, right? Like length of time. Um, are you talking about the amount of money to walk away with? Are you talking about what happens with the team? What, are, what exactly goes into this vision board? 
Well, for the seller side, it's when I say vision board, it's kind of a light way of saying it's a plan. So for sellers, there is no, so if you're a seller, by the time that you're coming up with these exit plans, it's a little bit late to have a business plan in place. But if you're a buyer aspiring to get to the point where you own the practice and you're about to sell the practice, so if you're able to catch it early in the life cycle, creating a business plan, a full-fledged business plan is the best thing to do. And in your business plan, these plans don't have to be Harvard Business School plans. I mean, I think <laughs> a lot of people get intimidated. You hear business plan, you think, oh my gosh, I need my MBA or I need to hire someone to write it. But, you know, that's where I say vision board because I feel like it's more palatable to people to say, okay, it's just something that I can kind of put together. But ideally, we're talking about a business plan. So for sellers, I can't really say business plan because at that point, unless you're planning on continuing the practice and making changes, sure. But if you're at your exit strategy, it's kind of difficult to create a plan to exit. But you, by all means, can create a plan to exit. It just won't be a business plan. But you can create, figure out you know, your ideal timing. You can figure out based on, again, and I'm, I keep going back on this, and I don't mean to beat a dead horse, but you really, really need the help of your valuation experts and teams, your dental CPAs, to give you a true realistic idea. And, and you would not, as a seller, do yourself a service and saying, oh, my practice is worth this much. You really ought to know the true fair market value, so to speak, and what you should expect and what you can command as a seller so that you're not disappointing yourself and you're not also shortchanging yourself and kind of guesstimating something where you should actually command more. So again, consult with your financial groups. It's productive if you are if you have a banker friend to kind of talk to them and say, hey, what are your thoughts? If you were representing a buyer, what do I need to do in terms of making my practice worth, for example, this much? So it always helps, but I'm, I'm going to shift the focus here because my strengths are really with buyers is for buyers to develop that business plan. So when you're considering is now the right time to purchase, and I know we're, we're kind of banning this word, but COVID or no COVID, it always helps to know what, what is your expectation? So I'll tell my buyers, listen, you need to come up with a simple business plan that at least achieves five topics. So you need to look at your objective. Why do you want to open up your own practice? Now, if you're an existing practice owner, the question is, why do you want to expand? Why do you want to open a second location? But you definitely want to have that sort of subjective analysis in your business plan. The second piece is your marketing analysis. People often will look online and say, oh, well, you know, I've got a practice here and here, but really give it some time and focus. Drive through the areas that you're trying to open look online, figure out, is there a market or need for your, your business? Basically, you don't want to cannibalize, right? And you don't want to go into an oversaturated market. Exactly. It sounds like what you were saying. Exactly. I mean, if, you, if you're a GP and you're trying to expand to a second location, you really have to think about, well, is it smart for me to open up in the same shopping center, assuming there's no exclusivity, right? Or is it, is it smart for me to go and open up yet another one? And sometimes the answer is, depending on what sort of building you're looking at, it's not necessarily a saturation issue. Um, sometimes it's just area. So for example, if you look at these sort of hospital buildings and the next door medical facilities where you have a lot of doctors housed, you know, it's not uncommon to see like two or three GPs, for example, or one specialty group. That's fine. 
but just make sure that you're not all marketing for the same patients. So you're not all marketing in the same neighborhood, because at that point, it becomes an issue of whose prices are lower, or who's accepting certain insurances. Do you want to do that to yourself? The third thing, too, is a competitive analysis. So that's kind of feeding into the market analysis. But look at things like, what are they doing? What is your goal? What do you plan to do differently? And, you know, this is where, Teresa, you could speak to it about insurances is maybe do a demographic study and see, are there certain types of demographics where you would benefit from being credentialed with those insurance companies and working with those insurance companies and offering those services? So make sure that in your competitive analysis, you find your own niche so that you're not necessarily competing and and having this sort of competitor issue. That's very important. The, the, the differentiator, that's really what we need to think about when, when I get a call about insurance is, you know, should I, should I go into this area? I'm already crazy with insurance. Should I go into this area? And I will say, is it, you know, tell me more about the area. If it is a, say it's a university town and the university, and that's the biggest employer in the town, right? If you're not going to participate with that insurance, you're going to need to have something that differentiates you, either a membership plan, maybe you're aiming for the higher end, maybe your boutique practice, maybe you have partnered with a specialist and you do surgery, you know, maybe there's, there's some synergy there, but you can't go into a town where you're just the same as everybody else. You're right. It goes down, then it goes to price. And that's, you never want to compete on price. That's, that's a horrible position to put yourself in. I've been getting a lot of calls like that. Like, should I get off this plan? And the first thing I say is tell me about your patients and tell me about the big employers in the area. I will say that usually about, I'd say 90% of the people that I talk to about this, they don't know who the big employers are in the area. And you do need to know that. That is definitely, that's part of your marketing analysis too is finding out, you know, what what is the demographic, who's the big employers, so that you can you can target those in your marketing. So you're right, it does tie together completely. So, okay, so you've got the competitive analysis. I love this stuff. I, I get so geeky about this stuff. All right, what's next? <laughs> so this part gets a little intimidating, but the financial analysis. What I usually tell dentists who are thinking about growing, so if you already own a practice, it's far easier for you to grab your dental CPA because you really ought to be working with one mm. and say, hey, if I take the same metrics on this practice and basically achieve this here, will I still accept, expect to be profitable? So having some way of measuring your financial success, because at the end of the day, the goal in opening up another practice or even your first practice and I self-employed, it should be to build a business. It should be to employ others and to achieve profitability. Can't really say this hundred percent because sometimes people have different needs, but I would say from a business perspective, the goal shouldn't be to keep yourself back of your mind is here's how much I need to cut break even your break even analysis. And here's how much I'm going to need to actually achieve profitability and then determine if it's a right move for you. The local dental CPAs wherever you are, are going to be really priceless with this. You found this, I know for sure. When you're out there trying to figure out, is your practice producing what it should be? You're going to talk to your friends and your friends either are not going to know their true numbers, which honestly, we've worked with enough dentists where we can say that. I would say it's a very small percentage who actually know the numbers and what's going on in their practice, right? Most of the time, 
Dentists will take a look at the reports that are given to them by the manager. And if the manager is great, you got good numbers. But if the manager is not great, who knows if your numbers are accurate. So the real, the buck stops with the dental CPAs because they're the ones who are taking care of your numbers. So if you really want to see if you're good in your area, if you're particip- if you're producing like you should be, according to the dental CPAs, you should talk to one because they'll take into account how big you are, how many employees you have, your insurance position. And, and honestly, if you're working with a regular CPA, you're probably going to get good stuff, but the dental CPA is going to know much more detailed about how your performance, where you are with your performance. So has that been your experience, Natasha? Absolutely. And that's something, Teresa, that I tell all of my buyers, because I generally am able to control that end of the process easier than the sales process. But tell the buyers, listen, who do you work with? It's always that conversation, right? Who do you currently work with? Who have you consulted with? Are they dental related? And then the other question is not just dental related, but is there focus on dentistry? Is there focus on healthcare? Because if it's not, then some of those key things, those those things that a normal dental CPA would say, you know what, well, you know, we're looking at your expenses and normalizing expenses, and this is how much you should be paying for supplies, or it seems like you're overpaying. A normal CPA may not be able to give you that intel. So it's those little nuggets that a professional, through corresponding with them, they're able to provide you as opposed to someone who is phenomenal, for example, it's a great CPA, but they might not have those sort of insider tricks and nuggets to provide. Right. And dental CPAs, too. Well, first of all, I should give a shout out. The Academy of Dental CPAs is a company that I've known for a long time. I've known many of the members and I can put a link up. And Natasha, if you have somebody that you really like working with, I'm happy to put their link up, too, if they're not part of them. But it is what I really like about them is they, they release surveys internally to their, you know, they have numbers and they compare numbers. And if you're a client, they can draw from other areas of the country. So say you want to get the heck out of Northern Virginia, you want to see if it's possible to go to a different area and make similar money, you're going to need to have that network in place. And networking is important. As a lawyer, Natasha, I'm sure you have uh, contacts in other areas of law that you don't even want to deal with. So you have contacts that way too, right? Now, now your contracts though, right? So how are you, <laughs> you do nothing but write contracts, right? Like you love contracts. Morph <laughs> in the back room who's typing and writing all day, but yeah, contracts, <laughs> things like indemnification clauses, and I won't make your head spin, but yes, I'm the writer. <laughs> I can come up with content so quickly. When I talk to Malika, for example, for our podcast, she's like, how are you coming up with this stuff? I'm like, I just thought about it. <laughs> It's, I know we, we're wired a different way. I, I get it. So this is, this is, I know we haven't gotten through the, the five points. The fourth was the financial analysis, but the, this is all part of what you would consider due diligence. Is that correct? It's a preliminary due diligence. So Preliminary. Okay. So we're not even at due diligence. No, no. So that's okay. different. That's so we okay. even embarked on the true acquisition process. All right. So let's put a pin in that because let's talk about that later. So let's get to your fifth point then. Sure. So the final thing that I recommend for our rudimentary business plan is, and this is going to sing well to your colleagues that you work with all the time, Teresa, and and you'll definitely be able to give some input on this, but focus now on how much, and this also keys into your financial analysis, but who are the key people that you need to bring into this practice to help you manage and operate it? So you're a business, 
and this is where dentistry is so unique, is unlike a true service-based industry, you cannot open up your own shingle or hang up your own shingle and say, I'm working. You have to have staff to help you with various things. So in that aspect, you have to, like I said, treat yourself as a business because it's not just about paying yourself and paying your staff, but achieving a profitability level based on your metrics and based on your goals. So who do you need to help you with that? And this conversation isn't just to address your professional team because that's a separate sort of related service. You can always hire out your consultant teams and you can always seek professional assistance, but this is more in-house. So your office manager, your assistants, your hygienists, this is where, and even your staff, your associates. So if you're a multi-practice or aspiring to be a multi-practice business, you have to think, well, do I want to go ahead and undertake a second practice as my baby? Or do I want to put an associate in here and have them really kind of spearhead this location? So this is where you really need to focus on the management and operations of the business in order to figure out your metrics for success and tying it back to your financial analysis and saying, okay, how much is this going to cost me? But how much am I expecting to earn as a result of this? You know, I'm curious what your opinion is on this. And, and this is, I only have my own experience to draw on. So maybe it's different for other people. I hope it's different for other people. When I was working full-time consulting and helping offices move from one to two to three, it seemed like the most tr- problematic situations was when the associate was sent to an, a, a new office and the senior dentists really didn't have much to do with that office. It was kind of, they were left alone. The office manager was now regional and going between the offices. And it never, I mean, I want to say I worked with six, six situations like this. I don't think it ever worked when the associate went by themselves. Is that just me <laughs> or have you seen that? That's one of the biggest hurdles to being a true multi-practice business owner is it's, So, you know, for example, if you're a solo practice owner, you generally know that the amount of effort you're able to give and get, you have more ability to focus on your own feedback. And believe it or not, sometimes when I ask practice owners who are doing phenomenally, I'll say, is it in your plans to maybe open up another practice? No, absolutely not. Why? Well, then I'm going to lose control over my ability to bring in patients and to check out those treatment plans and to not over-treat or whatever their philosophies are. And so that's one of the kind of challenges that multi-practice owners will face is, do you trust, do you have enough confidence in your hiring abilities? And even it's luck. Sometimes it truly comes down to luck. Sure. Did you find the right person to be the face of your second and third and fourth practice where they're happy. And we're going to come back to that in a moment, but they're happy, they're motivated, and they're truly good dentists and they their philosophies align. So, you know, one of the things that we talk about with our women in dentistry group is benefits and, you know, kind of thinking outside the box. And this is important for your financial analysis when you're looking at your operational team, making sure that you're paying them accordingly. And payment doesn't always mean in the traditional term of percentage of collections or your per diem or your hourly, but it really focuses on your um, benefits. For example, we're trying to promote this a lot, especially in this COVID world. Sorry, Teresa. 
But (laughs) the reason why she's saying sorry is because I know people are like so tired of hearing COVID. So I said in the beginning, I said, maybe we should try to avoid COVID. So it's not that (laughs) I'm not trying to be a tyrant about it. I just know I hate hearing about COVID nowadays. So that's all that is. So I just want to tell the listeners what our inside joke is. (laughs) It's a secret drinking game. Every time we say COVID, they don't. That's (laughs) (laughs) But um, so it's very important. Think about, again, outside the box benefits, especially because health insurance is an issue. And it's not a one size fits all for all practices, because sometimes if let's say that associates married and to someone who works in the government, they might have a wonderful benefits package when it comes to health insurance. So what might work for a lot of people might not necessarily work for everybody. But it's really important, again, to at least have a rough idea, a rough plan in your business plan on what you intend to do to keep management, to keep the operations, and to achieve a successful practice where you're not worried about turnaround and you're not worried about, or I'm sorry, turnover and that mm-hmm. sort of thing where your associate leaves last minute when you're trying to sell that practice and now you have no goodwill left with that second practice. Tell me what goodwill means for those who are new to this, this lingo. Mm, goodwill is basically the business reputation that the, depending on if we're talking about one practice or multi-practice, but generally it's the intangible reputation that, that trust, that means that patients come to you other than just your marketing, for example. And sometimes that plays into it, but it's just that kind of aura of that intangible goodwill. Wow, I don't know how to explain it, Teresa. I know it, it's, it, but it's something that it, you're right, though. It is sort of intangible because I've, I've heard that in situations where, you know, you go into it with goodwill and then it's broken because there's no goodwill there, like you said. Um, so it is, it is, I think it is an intangible. Maybe it was an unfair question, but I thought you could explain it a lot better than I can because I have a hard time explaining it too. Um, so we can always put a pin on that and go back to it. The, the thing with, with legal stuff is my audiences, the dentists, they hear it for the first time and managers too. And a lot of times they don't stop to ask what it means because they feel like they should know what it means. And, and that's, you know, that's, that's like with any layperson's terms. So anytime I hear that, and it's not just you, Natasha, it's anybody who comes in here and says a word that they're like, it's a big word. Um, <laughs> I try to break it down as much as I can. Uh, so so you, I think we have a good idea, though, of what that is. So if somebody is going in with the intent of purchasing and all of a sudden they don't realize that what, and now they realize that what they were purchasing is not that, it that takes away from the goodwill is what I kind of always imagined that it would be. So yeah, if you think you're going to be getting a good associate and all of a sudden that associate's not there, that changes the deal completely. That associate may take their assistant. that may take their receptionist. Everything changes. It changes the whole, I guess, concept of, of what, or the whole deal, the whole deal structure, I think. So we try to wrap it up in these uh, employment agreements. We say you're not to solicit, you're not to compete. But at the end of the day, you know, and I always tell my clients this, we can put things in contracts that are scary and spooky. And just like you said, these big old words, but at the end of the day, it lies in the enforcement ability and chances are, and a lot of people who work with me know this about me. I don't promote litigation to the furthest extent possible. Keep your feet out of court. It's a heartache. It's exhausting. It's expensive. And sometimes your expectations of the victory aren't always what they end up being. So to the furthest extent possible, you know, 
and of course the contracts are important because you have to enforce them sometimes. So it's not to say that you, you shouldn't, you absolutely should enforce what you're saying. But, you know, things like goodwill will say things like, for example, for a buyer's perspective, the goodwill is the staff. The goodwill is not just the patients, but the name and the reputation, the location. And if the seller does anything to kind of jeopardize those things where ultimately it impacts the patient's perception of that practice, that's now challenged the goodwill disparaging comments. And that's a topic for a whole nother day, but that's (laughs) our definition of goodwill and keeping that sort of thing within the practice. It is something to consider when you're a manager, because I, I, these aren't even business calls, but I've heard from about four or five of my really good friends who are managers who have all of a sudden been, you know, they come in the next day and they're told that they're part of an acquisition or a sale. And it really, um, it's really deflating for them because they felt that they had a really good relationship with the dentist and the dentist is, you know, they feel like their hands are tied. It's just a bad situation. It's like the worst breakup ever sometimes, you know? So I, I really don't have any advice for you if you're going through this, because I was just holding their hand, just talking them through it. But if you're a manager and this happens to you, just realize that it, it's the most of them want you to stay because they know how important you are. So don't feel like, don't immediately jump to, I can't believe he or she did this to me. A lot of times they're asked to, or even contracted to not tell the staff. Is that true? That's right. So that's a big deal. And Teresa, you brought up a good point. I'm going to circle to in a moment. So in terms of the, and this, a lot of buyers get really frustrated with this and I have to explain this to them. If I'm Dr. Smith, Uh, I am selling my practice after 30 or 40 years, very standard sale. And I tell my office manager, let's say three weeks into the process that, hey, I'm going to be selling soon. What could happen is office manager, as you said, gets scared. They say, wow, I can't, do I have job security? Am I going to be important? Is this new buyer who might be in, for example, their 30s and 40s, thinking of someone like me who might be in their 50s and 60s, or are they going to bring someone, some young gun here and undercut my salary? There's a lot of questions and concerns with these acquisitions. So it's a tricky thing where we have to make sure, and this is every time I talk to the buyers, I say, put yourself in seller's shoes. Again, we're signing contracts, but are you 100% confident that this buyer won't just leave? And you being that buyer, you're promising that you're interested and engaged. But if you're that seller who may have been burned before with another acquisition, chances are you don't want to mess up that quote unquote goodwill that we were just talking about and letting staff know, hey, I've got another buyer. We're closing next week. So it gets tricky. But the counter argument to that is we do want the seller to help you know, transfer that goodwill. So sometimes making that announcement a week before closing is far more effective than waiting until the actual closing day where the practice changes hands and then saying, oh, by the way, guys, <laughs> guess what I just did? Because then they feel like they lost faith in someone that they've been with for all these years. It's a fine line. And ultimately, from a buyer's perspective, when buyers are looking at staff, I will be very clear with them and say, I don't recommend that you change anything right now. Let everything go a few months, make sure everybody's comfortable, make sure the personalities match. If you then want to consider changes, first look at the staff, talk to them, see if you can't repair relationships, or maybe sometimes staff's ready to go. Figure out all scopes before you make any changes. 
So we're very careful with those buyers. Don't mess anything up. Keep everything as is. You're buying the whole practice as it is, but you're just implanting yourself in that place right now. And, and patients really do. I mean, they, they, and they walk in, they're going to see a totally new staff. You know, I, I hate to say it, I hate for the hygienist to hear this, but a lot of times if the hygienists leave, it's not, you know, of course they're attached to them. If the assistant leaves, they're not attached to them. But for some reason, when they walk in and it could be anybody, the manager or the receptionist, whoever is, whomever is sitting there when they walk in, seeing a new face and then seeing a new dentist the patient has gone to a new practice without knowing it. And that's also a sense of betrayal too. So you do want to see friendly faces when you go there. So that's something for dentists to think about. I just know I've seen that go wrong so often. And one, one that I was working with, they enlisted the manager to be part of it. And then she felt bad because now she couldn't tell the people that she worked with what was going on. But at the same time, she was priceless in the transition because she knew the numbers and she helped with the reports and all of that. But I also know some, some managers who were involved in that and that didn't go well either. So (laughs) we have horror stories on both sides of it. So, (laughs) all right. So we've got, you've got the key people here. And so now where do we go? We've got those five points that we've discussed and where do we go from here? So once you decide now's the time, I, I've got my plan in place and you're a buyer, you have to understand the acquisition process. Uh, and this is where I've, a lot of my time goes and just having these free consults, I call them or- orientation roadmaps. My philosophy is if you're a buyer, whether it's your first time or your second time or your third time, your focus isn't always on the legalese and the process. You're just kind of running through the motions. So it's important to kind of take a step back. If nobody showed you that this, there's a way that these things always happen, then you're just kind of the mouse on the wheelhouse. You're running, 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 and you don't know where you're going. So it's really important to understand all of these acquisitions generally have a very predictable stage roadmap. Same with buyers. If I educate my buyers on this roadmap, it's the same thing at least they'll understand, okay, this is how we're heading. This is the direction. A lot of the services aren't always directed towards things that the seller needs to do. Like for example, if I'm working with a seller, I'm not always necessarily engaged in the acquisition because a lot of the burden falls on the buyer to accomplish those sort of things within those stages. But again, if you're a seller, it helps when you understand, okay, we're here, but I don't have to do anything right now. I'm waiting for the the buyer to continue their process so we can clear stage one and move to clear stage two. So very quickly, because I know before our our listeners' ears kind of glaze over, if their eyes (laughs) glaze over, (laughs) um, the acquisition roadmap. So basically, step one, I call it the preliminary stage. This is where... The seller will have their practice. Generally, it occurs after hours. The buyers will take a look at the practice. It's basically an open house. Take a look. They'll see what it looks like because it's always visual, right? You always want to see what you're looking at. You see it. You like it. You look at some preliminary financial information. This process is generally spearheaded by your dental CPA if you're a buyer or alternately your banker. So they will have a list of things that they generally say, you know what, we want to see the financials for the seller to see what we think in terms of your lending power buyer. And so that's kind of, again, the preliminary investigation. This is not the time for a buyer to go into a seller's practice and say, let me see your active patient numbers. Let me see your patient Uh, information. Okay. Because this is all proprietary. This is all stuff that we don't want to dive into yet. 
once we clear that phase, the second is, or I'm sorry, we haven't cleared the phase yet. Generally, we finish this phase with a letter of intent. We'll say, okay, what is the intention now? Are you still happy to move forward, buyer? If so, what are the basic parameters? So we'll identify broad line things like what's your purchase price offer? How is the process going to move forward from here? So we'll outline the stages moving forward. We'll outline things like um, non-compete, make sure a seller understands you're going to be bound to a non-compete, you're selling your practice, so on and so forth. So I don't want to burden your your viewers but or your listeners, so we'll kind of end <laughs> that there. Um, stage two is basically where we really get intensive in the acquisition process. I call this the due diligence phase. There's a lot of different things happening here. You've got your lender, if you're a buyer, basically giving you a final approval. You've got your attorney working on the lease, reviewing a lease. If it's a uh, pur- purchase of a real estate, they're looking at the real estate contract to help you purchase it. They're looking at acquisition agreement. So what happens with a lot of these deals for buyer and seller, they have to understand you're not buying stock in the seller's practice. You're buying the assets and the goodwill. So it's as if you have ice cream cartons and you're taking your scooper and you're taking the ice cream out of the seller's carton and you're dumping the ice cream into your carton. That's what an asset sale is. Okay. So at this point, that I can understand. I can understand it. <laughs> at this point, uh, Teresa, I always tell my buyers to let's take a step outside of the process and look forward to when you are actually going to own this practice. So this is where I will tell them, start looking at those insurance credentialing services. Like, for example, Malika provides that. Start talking to people like you and make sure you have a a plan on how to decide which insurances you need to accept and how to strategize those things. So this is where I would recommend to a buyer, reach out to these professionals and start strategizing for, again, outside of this process once you are the practice owner. So we'll kind of wrap it up here um, with these contracts are all flowing. The process is still moving. At this point, once the contracts are signed, we can reserve a certain time period where the buyer can come back and now do their intensive due diligence. So they can really get into the nitty gritty of active patients, scheduling, learn a little bit more. At this point, if the seller is comfortable, once the contracts are signed, they can go ahead and do those sort of staff introductions if they find that they're comfortable doing that strategize, you know, benefits, coordination, the sort of things that will help the buyer take on the staff and take on the patient. So this is at this point where they have the heart-to-heart conversations and meetings. The timeline with credentialing has been really tricky for a lot of these purchases. I'm sure you've run into it. It seems like it's getting pushed out further and further. And especially with the shutdown, you know, that's even pushed back further. But how far... And I apologize if you hear my dogs playing in the background. They're always playing in the background. (laughs) If somebody's coming in and they need to credential, do you give them a little bit of a buffer period as well? So all of these acquisitions generally follow a, I would say about 60 max 90 day timeline. Now, the reality is sometimes things will pop up like during the stage, the stage two for, so for instance, something that I look at behind the scenes with the lender, the buyer's lender are things like liens. So we'll say, Hey seller, who do you owe money to? Who is your lender? Do you have a lender? Do you have equipment loans? Who has a lien on your practice asset? And believe it or not, even though the seller sometimes doesn't owe money to any creditors, those liens were never cleared. So Uh, we have to do a lot of kind of investigative work to say, how do we get these letters from these people? Because a buyer is not going to be comfortable, nor will their bank saying, okay, you're a free and clear owner without making sure those documents reflect the same. 
So sometimes we'll see things, believe it or not, like the 941 quarterly. So oftentimes if you're, when you're a business owner, you'll have to file certain documents with the IRS to reflect your employment withholdings. And believe it or not, if you don't have a good dental CPA, Mm-hmm. your withholdings weren't calculated correctly. And now you've got two years worth of 941 quarterlies that you haven't paid on and that's bloomed into a lien. So that's something that when I see it, we have to address it. And this is kind of an all hands on board sort of, hey, seller, what can you do to help us with this? But after we get that point, uh, after we get that process done, contracts are signed, we have that little bit of due diligence left. We move on to phase three. Phase three is a final where we get ready to close. The formal closing is when the loan is funded. If there's no loan, then the process is shortened. So instead of 60 days or 90 days, for example, you're looking at a potential 30-day closing because it's all buyer finance. But how often does that that happen that somebody comes in with with cash and, and does that? It depends on the price of the practice. Oh, I see. Okay. So if somebody if there's a fire sale, then you could see that happen. Oh, I gotcha. Okay. So if a practice is listed at like 150000 there is an understanding generally that the buyer's lender probably would not be comfortable loaning money on that because it might be that the practice is underproducing, the practice is distressed. There's some story behind why it's so cheap. And I mean, it's not to say that this always happens, but it's, it's understood that it can happen. And if that happens, then the buyer... We kind of look at the outside, aside from the goodwill, because most of these are goodwill-related sales, how much, basically it's revenue. How much revenue is the, the seller generating that the buyer can expect to gain if they step in seller's shoes? So in those cases, we'll look at some other things like, okay, how much would it cost for a buyer to start up a practice? Is a buyer buying assets that are actually potentially worth something here, like chairs, you know, equipment? So I hate to say it, sometimes we do look outside the box a little bit, aside from the traditional sort of perspective and say, okay, well, is this practice really worth 150 potentially? And if that's the case, then sometimes the buyers will say, okay, well, I'm going to put up a hefty amount of my own cash, mm-hmm. or I'll put it all up in cash, and then we'll work something out the seller where I'm paying the seller monthly payments or however which way they structure it. That's a promissory note. So 20 years ago, when when I started, well, more than 20 years ago, I shouldn't even lie, more than 20 years ago, when I started working with my doctor, back then, it was very common for the seller to hold the note on many practices. Is that very still common? Or is it pretty much in this day and age, they don't do that anymore? It's so, it depends. Sellers generally prefer to get their money as entirely as possible to help with the formal handing off period, the actual closing. So, and it also depends again on the price of the practice. So if you are in a position where your buyer's lender, especially during these times that might not be willing to lend a certain amount, now the promissory note scheme is becoming a little more common again, where the practice is worth this, but the lender isn't comfortable lending this for whatever reason. And so now we've got this discrepancy where the buyer has to decide, well, is this practice worth it for me? And am I willing to go ahead and just do those payments to the seller? The easiest closings that we've had, though, are the in-house, so to speak, closings, where it's just between buyer and seller, lender's not involved, because it provides a little more of a understood flexibility. And it's not to say the seller has to give those concessions, but it's still easier than dealing with a big box lender where 
If you don't pay on the 1st or the 15th or whatever your schedule is, then you're facing a potential foreclosure. Sellers tend to be a little more flexible with that sort of thing. Got it. Okay. Okay. So once we close on the deal, um, we have to be prepared to hand off the keys, to have utilities and payroll and everything for the buyer set up. And then generally for acquisition purposes, like if today was the closing day, I will tell the buyer tomorrow is the day that you're officially the owner. So that's kind of the, the process in a nutshell, um, the three steps that I usually outline for all of my buyers during our orientation call in for sellers so they understand the process. It's exciting. It's so exciting when somebody gets the keys to their practice. I was working with one lady and she opened up her second practice and you know, I was there to meet with the team and she said, come see the second practice. I just closed yesterday. We walked in and, and there was, it was empty. It was a space she was going to build out again. I mean, the, the owner had passed away, unfortunately. And so it was, it had been empty for a while. So she was going to build it out and make it her own. But the look on her face of being so excited. I mean, I've just, there's very few times in life when you see pure joy. And that was just pure joy. Her getting so excited. And, and she had a daughter she was going to bring in, was coming out of dental school. She was just so excited. So I know there's a lot of consultants that listen to. If you're ever part of that, you know, just understand that's so, so emotional. You know, send them a congratulatory basket or send them something when they open up and just, just keep the good feelings going because it's such a big step. You know, I, I, I get really excited about that. I just remember how happy she was. So because honestly, transitions like this can be super easy or super bad. I mean, super just, and it's hard for you because now, now you have to make sure everything happens and you're putting out fires, right? Like if it doesn't go correctly. Yep. So yeah, Teresa, what I usually tell my buyers just quite frankly is, you know, at the end of the day, this acquisition has to work for you. If things go bad, I mean, there's only so much we can do to damage control these sort of scenarios where, let's say, unfavorable information comes into light, or there's a situation where we find out, for example, that the valuation, there was a hiccup in it, and maybe, for example, buyer has an issue with transitioning where their employer wouldn't agree to kind of cut short their period, for example, of their notice period. But either way, at the end of the day, the, the conversation I have with my buyer is, you know, you have to make the decision whether to move forward or not. The professionals, we can only put out so many fires and we're here for, for the acquisition process, but you're going to be the one who inherits basically the post-closing ramifications of this business. So, you know, I always defer to their business plan. <laughs> was it within your plan? Was it within your, your realm? And you know, with that flexibility that not all acquisitions are perfect. And given those circumstances, are you still willing to move forward? So yeah, it's not easy on the side either. I'm wondering, is there something that they could keep an eye out for? Or are there warning signs like the first 30 days or 60 days after they take the keys? Or is it pretty much it's so across the board varied? Uh, I mean, is there even a template like that to watch out for? No. So remember with acquisitions, you basically, the understanding is you have that due diligence period in phase two to discover anything adverse, and then that's it. You're moving forward. And that's where there's a lot of sometimes level of anxiety, not so much with existing practice owners who are expanding because they already understand that, but it's really with the new practice owners who are aspiring to open a practice is they feel like, well, how do I know? Is there any surety? And at the end of the day, you know, unless you're a big corporate business, um, and generally like a hospital merger or something like that, your level of due diligence, we still have to be cognizant of the fact that 
you're still looking relatively dental practices are generally small businesses. You're still looking at a small business acquisition. So there's a huge level at the end of the day of that, what I call the integrity of the acquisition, the understanding that buyer is going to do something correctly. They're not going to be tricky or sticky. Same with the seller. The seller is truly setting forth their best foot. They're not lying. So it's a lot of that sort of fairness in the process that we do have a trust in each other. And we, and that's where the professionals are important is making sure that if, if a seller is listing with a reputable broker, for example, then we're more confident that there's been more eyes on this deal and that that person would not attach their name to a shady seller, for example. But no, unfortunately, there's no test drive. Once you close, you close. <laughs> you got the keys. No, no take backs. <laughs> that should, you know, that should be a good motto for you. Just uh, avoid the shady sellers. That's <laughs> that's a good motto, right? Um, <laughs> you know, one other, uh, I guess it's not really a hobby for years. You're really dedicated to this is uh, elevating women in dentistry. You have a Facebook group. Do you want to talk a little bit about it? Ah, empowering business women in dentistry. The idea came up. It was actually one of my goals last year. So we had such a wonderful closing year with acquisitions and startups. And that's a discussion for another day about startups. But the, the, I kind of get into these patterns of having the same discussions over and over again with at different varying levels. So sometimes it'll be at the graduate stage. Someone's graduating. They're getting ready to embark on their future employment plans as an associate. Sometimes these conversations start as early as then when we're looking at the non-compete provisions and saying, what are your goals for the future? Sometimes the conversation will stem from an associate who's already looking outward and saying, what are my options at this point? So the idea of this group was, you know what, there's not a lot of business acumen that's provided as a service, particularly to the women in business and dentistry. So that's where I kind of co-teamed with Malika because we have really good synergy. She handles a lot of the processes in the actual application of running a practice. Whereas for me, it's just kind of teeing things up and doing those contracts and clearing title, the preliminary stuff, so to speak. So we said, why don't we line up our efforts and really serve as a business study club for these women who, they, you know, it, the professionals are critical, but The other issue, too, that you run into is sometimes there's an overload of information where you're reading this book and that book and you're looking at this podcast and and, or listening to the podcast, watching this webinar, and you're just so inundated with opinions and information that you don't have a specific place to address that you trust, for example, that can not only foster the educational component, but also serve as kind of a venting area where emotionally it's very hard. You can't look at practice ownership in a vacuum. The emotional components are very critical. Absolutely. So that's where we kind of came up with this group and we were trying to meet in person, but that didn't work this year. (laughs) Morphed into a Facebook group for now. And I'm trying to link it to Instagram for those who like Instagram better, but we're open to all women in dentistry, whether you're a D4, whether you're an associate, whether you're a practice owner, aspiring or multi-practice, or even looking at a DSO, we're here to serve as a place for you to get that information. We try to post articles that are relevant that are on the news. I try to provide some feedback without boring our members to death about the legal <laughs> So it's just a nice little mix. And I think you've seen our group. You've been a part mm-hmm. of it. Yeah. 
Yeah, I remember you. Uh, there was a meetup that you guys were going to have, and it was, I think, February, you know, and I couldn't do it because I was traveling. Actually, I think you start maybe January, February. And every time it was a Friday, because that's when I'm always on the road speaking. And then the one time I could, of course, COVID. And <laughs> so it was, it was just, it's, it's meant to be a Facebook group. It's meant to be a virtual thing, I think, at this point. I look forward to, to seeing everybody again. I mean, I, I, I'm starting to miss people. Like for a while I was like, I'm fine, but now I'm going, I need to see my friends. Uh, so yeah. It, so hopefully if you, I'll put a link in the show notes, uh, check out the Facebook group, you know, and she doesn't overpower you with stuff. I know some groups it's like so much, but it is growing. Every time I log in, there's new members being welcome. And that that's really exciting. So it's, it's, I love it. It's one of the, it's one of the groups I check into every day. So I'll definitely put a link to that in the show notes. And I do want to talk in the future about the whole startup process too, because I know that's something that's a lot of people, you know, the D4s, even the D3s, you know, I've, I've had some outreach from people in dental school that actually, <laughs> it's not that they were listening for dental podcasts. I think they were, they were with someone who was listening to it and then they reached out for advice. I think you probably are going to get the same, same type of uh, inquiries. So, but you are available for the discovery, what did you, what did you call it? Educational? No, you had a complimentary call, but you called it like an acquisition. Orientation. Orientation. Oh my gosh. I'm going back to school. An orientation phone call. Because it's a schooling call. We have to take it back. Yes. It's orientation call. (laughs) And you do have it on your website. Um, So I do want to send people to your website. It is the Gillis firm, all one word, the Gillis firm.com. And of course I'm going to link that on the show notes too. And Take a listen to her uh, podcast. And if you ever want to hear a dental Zorro, Malika is hilarious. So you'll you'll like Malika. So listen to Dental Bites with the Dental Zorro and the Smiling Lawyer. And how can they reach you other than their website? Is there another way that they can reach you? I'm very personable. You don't have to go through layers of people to get in touch with me. <laughs> Just shoot me an email. My email is, it's on the website. And I'll give you the more direct one too. It's Natasha Gillis Law at gmail.com. And that'll hit my phone and I will be able to see it on all my platforms. So no excuses. I have to get back to you there. There you go. There you go. Well, so thank you very much. I really appreciate this was a lot of information, which actually my audience loves dense conversations. They really do. So I sometimes will get questions like, okay, but we need to know more of this. That was nice. I heard your movie choices, but what about this? So (laughs) my my listeners are pretty blunt. So All right. Well, so Natasha, thank you so much. We'll definitely have you back to talk about the startups. Thank you, Teresa. Thanks for having me. Absolutely. And again, listeners, I always appreciate every moment that you give to me to listen to this podcast. We're all super busy. So thank you for making time for me today. The show notes will have any links that we referenced in this episode. You can also find links for my book and for my live events and webinar schedule. I speak often around the country on management and insurance issues. Come hang out with me in one of my classes. I promise you'll laugh and learn.